Welcome to Exploring the Catechism of the Council of Trenton. Here I'm Mark Langley, and today is day 89 in our exploration of this catechism. Today we are going to begin the seventh sacrament in this catechism, Holy Orders, and we will then, after afterwards, we'll finish the sacrament of matrimony. It might be helpful to remember at this point how St. Thomas explains how fitting it is that there are seven sacraments and he talks about how the spiritual life has a certain conformity to the natural life, the physical life of man. And he says that a man in the physical life is perfected in three ways, um, namely through being born, through growing, and through nourishment. And he says also we are perfected in the spiritual life that way. And so, of course, we're talking about the sacraments of baptism, confirmation, and the Holy Eucharist in that respect. But then he says this would be enough um, if we didn't have such a thing as a sickness. And in the life of the body, we see that man gets sick. And to this conforms the sacrament of penance, because also in the spiritual life through sin, we become sick. And then he also says there's a sacrament that conforms to the restoration of a person. After he's healed from his sickness, he nonetheless needs a certain, he needs to restore himself to his former vigor. And in the sacramental life, in the life of the soul, we have the sacrament of extreme unction, which restores the soul to its former vigor, among many other things, as we talked about with each sacrament. But then St. Thomas says man is not only perfected with respect to himself in the life of the body, but he's also perfected with respect to the life that man leads in a community because he reminds us that Aristotle said man is by nature a social animal. He's an animal that lives not just in his own life, but he also has a life in a community through which he is perfected. And so therefore, we have two things that perfect us in the life of the community. One, we, have, we need to have order in the community. And, and the same thing as in the spiritual community, the communion of saints, the church, we have the sacrament of holy orders. And finally, the community is perfected by the arrival of new members to fill out that community. And therefore, the sacrament of matrimony conforms to marriage and the natural life. So that's just a quick um, reminder of these seven sacraments and how fitting it is that Christ established, he instituted seven sacraments. St. Thomas shows us how fitting that is by showing us the parallel that the sacraments have with the natural life of man. And so today, though, we are going to begin our study of this Sacrament of Holy Orders, which is a more lengthy uh, treatment because there, there are so many things involved in Holy Orders. We will begin reading in the Catechism the Sacrament of Holy Orders, and it begins often, like it often does, with a paragraph on the importance of instruction on this sacrament. And so we begin reading, If one attentively considers the nature and essence of the other sacraments, it will readily be seen that they all depend on the sacrament of orders, to such an extent that without it, some of them could not be constituted or administered at all, while others would be deprived of all their solemn ceremonies, as well as of a certain part of the religious respect 
and exterior honor accorded to them. Wherefore, in continuing the exposition of the doctrine of the sacraments, it will be necessary for pastors to bear in mind that it is their duty to explain with even special care the sacrament of orders. This explanation will be highly advantageous, first of all, to the pastor himself, then to all those who have entered on the ecclesiastical state, and finally to the people in general, to the pastor himself, because by treating of the subject he himself will be more deeply moved to stir up within him the grace he has received in this sacrament, to those who have been called to the portion of the Lord, partly by animating them with a like spirit of piety, and partly by affording them an opportunity of acquiring a knowledge of such things as will enable them all the more easily to advance to higher orders, to the rest of the faithful, first because it enables them to understand the respect due to the church's ministers, and secondly, because as it often happens, that many may be present who have destined their children, while yet young, for the church's service, or who desire to embrace that life themselves. It is far from right that such persons should be unacquainted with the principal truths regarding this particular state. I suppose before we go on, we have to remember that the Catechism was published in 1566 by Pope Pius V, and um, there have been changes in the Church's canon law with respect to the Sacrament of Orders. We're going to read about the uh, Sacrament of Orders, of course, as it existed in 1566, when there were seven different orders, the um, major orders and the minor orders, uh, three major orders and four minor orders. Um, but we remember that in the Second Vatican Council, um, although the council itself didn't um, change the uh, makeup of this sacrament with respect to the various offices, as, with, as it lies within its right to do, since the church itself is the, um, able to lay down these sorts of laws uh, with respect to the minor orders. Um, we, there was a motu proprio by Paul VI in 1973 that essentially suppressed the four minor orders. And so things have changed a bit, and we'll, we'll have a little more chance to talk about those changes, and uh, we'll look, also look at that motu proprio Ministeria Quaedam, published in 1973. But nonetheless, I still think that the uh, reading of the Catechism with respect to Holy Orders as it existed for so many centuries still sheds a great amount of light on the sacrament, especially with respect to those minor orders. So let's begin to read um, under the subheading, The Dignity of This Sacrament. In the first place, then, the faithful should be shown how great is the dignity and excellence of this sacrament, considered in its highest degree the priesthood. Bishops and priests being as they are God's interpreters and ambassadors, empowered in his name to teach mankind the divine law and the rules of conduct, and holding as they do his place on earth, it is evident that no nobler function than theirs can be imagined. Justly, therefore, are they called not only angels, but even gods, because of the fact that they exercise in our midst the power and prerogatives of the immortal God. In all ages, priests have been held in the highest honor, 
Yet the priests of the New Testament far exceed all others. For the power of consecrating and offering the body and blood of our Lord and of forgiving sins, which has been conferred on them, not only has nothing equal or like to it on earth, but even surpasses human reason and understanding. And as our Savior was sent by his Father, and as the apostles and disciples were sent into the whole world by Christ our Lord, so priests are daily sent with the same powers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, and the edifying of the body of Christ. That's a um, reference to St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians in chapter 4. The Catechism continues the requirements in candidates for orders. The burden of this great office, therefore, should not be rashly imposed on anyone, but is to be conferred on those only who, by their holiness of life, their knowledge, faith, and prudence, are able to bear it. Let no one take the honor to himself, but he that is called by God, as Aaron was, as we read in Hebrews chapter 5. And they, are, and they are called by God, who are called by the lawful ministers of his church. It is to those who arrogantly intrude themselves into this ministry that the Lord must be understood to refer when he says, I did not send prophets, yet they ran. That's in Jeremiah chapter 23. Nothing can be more unhappy and wretched than such a class of men as this, and nothing more calamitous to the church of God. In every action we undertake, it is of the highest importance to have a good motive in view, for if the motive is good, the rest proceeds harmoniously. The candidate for holy orders, therefore, should first of all be admonished to to entertain no purpose unworthy of so exalted an office. This subject demands all the greater attention, since in these days the faithful often sin gravely in this respect. Some there are who embrace this state to secure the necessaries of life, and who consequently seek in the priesthood, just as other men do in the lowest walks of life, nothing more or less than gain. Though both the natural and divine law lay down, as the apostle remarks, that he who serves the altar should live by the altar. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Yet to approach the altar for the sake of gain and money is one of the very gravest of sacrileges. Some are attracted to the priesthood by ambition and love of honors, while there are others who desire to be ordained simply in order that they may abound in riches, as is proved by the fact that unless some wealthy benefits were conferred on them, they would not dream of receiving holy orders. It is such as these that our Savior describes as hirelings, who in the words of Ezekiel, feed themselves and not the sheep, and whose baseness and dishonesty have not only brought great disgrace on the ecclesiastical state, so much so that hardly anything is now more vile and contemptible in the eyes of the faithful, but also end in this, that they derive no other fruit from their priesthood than was derived by Judas from the apostleship, which only brought him everlasting destruction. But they, on the other hand, who lawfully, who are lawfully called by God and who undertake the ecclesiastical state with a single motive of promoting the honor of God, are truly said to enter the church by the door. This, however, must not be understood as if the same law did not bind all men equally. 
Men have been created to honor God, and this the faithful in particular, who have obtained the grace of baptism, should do with their whole heart, their whole soul, and with all their strength. But those who desire to receive the sacrament of orders should aim not only at seeking the glory of God in all things, an obligation admittedly common to all men, and particularly to the faithful, but also to serve him in holiness and justice in whatever sphere of his ministry they may be placed. Just as in the army all the soldiers obey the general's orders, though they all have not the same functions to discharge, one being a centurion, another a prefect, so in like manner, though all the faithful should diligently practice piety and innocence, which are the chief means of honoring God, yet they who are in holy orders have certain special duties and functions to discharge in the church. Thus they offer sacrifice for themselves and for all the people. They explain God's law and exhort and inform the faithful to observe it promptly and cheerfully. They administer the sacraments of Christ our Lord, by means of which all grace is conferred and increased. And in a word, they are separated from the rest of the people to fill by far the greatest and noblest of all ministries. Here we might pause and just remark that it might be a little infrequent that we encounter uh, men who want to join the uh, priesthood or, or be ordained for the sake of um, money or ambition to uh, achieve power. Um, I can hardly imagine doing that in our day, but I, um, anyone who studies history can remember that sometimes um, this or that person received, as the Catechism says, a benefice when he was made a bishop, perhaps from a uh, some um, noble or feudal lord who would um, establish a, uh, a bishop or an, an abbot or something in a, in a uh, very wealthy monastery or um, bishopric. And so um, one, one can see why the Catechism is uh, really distressed at those who seek the priesthood or to be ordained for some physical good such as wealth or power. We're also reminded about how the Catechism always proceeds by comparing the things in the spiritual life to those things in the visible world, as St. Paul says in Romans 1.20, just as in the army there are various orders, so in the, so in the church, the life of the church and the spiritual life, there are orders. So we continue the subheading here is the twofold power conferred by this sacrament. Having explained all this, the pastor should now turn his attention to the special properties of this sacrament, so that the faithful who desire to enter into the ecclesiastical state may understand the nature of the office to which they are called and the extent of the power bestowed by God on the church and her ministers. This power is twofold, the powers of orders and the power of jurisdiction. The power of orders has for its object the real body of Christ our Lord in the Blessed Eucharist. The power of jurisdiction refers altogether to the mystical body of Christ. The scope of this power is to govern and rule the Christian people and lead them to the unending bliss of heaven. The power of orders not only embraces the power of consecrating the Eucharist, but also fits and prepares the souls of men for its reception. It also embraces all else that can have any reference to the Eucharist. Regarding this power, numerous passages of sacred scripture may be adduced. 
but the weightiest and most striking are those which are read in St. John and St. Matthew. As the Father, says our Lord, hath sent me, I also send you. Receive ye the Holy Ghost, whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven them, and whose sins you shall retain, they are retained. And, Amen, I say to you, whatsoever you shall bind upon earth shall be bound also in heaven, and whatsoever you shall loose upon earth shall be loosed also in heaven. And of course we read those passages in John chapter 20 and Matthew chapter 18. These texts, when expounded by pastors, in accordance with the teaching and authority of the fathers, will throw great light on this truth. This power far excels that given under the law of nature to certain ones who had charge of sacred things. The period previous to the written law must have had its priesthood and its spiritual power, since it is certain that it had its law. For these two, as the apostle testifies, are so closely connected that if the priesthood is transferred, the law must necessarily be transferred also. Guided, therefore, by a natural instinct, men recognize that God is to be worshipped, and hence it follows that in every nation, some whose power might in a certain sense be called spiritual, were given the care of sacred things and of divine worship. This power was also possessed by the Jews, but though it was superior in dignity to that with which priests were invested under the law of nature, yet it must be regarded as far inferior to the spiritual power that is found in the new law. For the latter is heavenly and surpasses all the power of angels. It is derived not from the Mosaic priesthood, but from Christ our Lord, who was a priest, not according to the order of Aaron, but according to the order of Melchizedek. For he it is who himself endowed with the supreme power of granting grace and remitting sins, left to his church this power, although he limited it in extent and attached it to the sacraments. And we'll just read a couple more paragraphs. The next subheading is the names of this sacrament. Hence, to exercise this power, certain ministers are appointed and solemnly consecrated, which consecration is called the sacrament of orders, or sacred ordination. The fathers use this word, which in itself has a most extensive signification, to show the dignity and excellence of God's ministers. In fact, order, when understood in a strict meaning and, accept, and acceptation, is the arrangement of superior and inferior things so disposed as to stand in mutual relation towards each other. Now, as in this ministry there are many grades and various functions, and as all these are disposed and arranged according to a definite plan, the name order has been well and properly applied to it. And finally, the paragraph uh, entitled, Holy Orders is a Sacrament. That sacred ordination is to be numbered among the sacraments of the Church, the Council of Trent has established by the same line of reasoning as we have already used several times. Since a sacrament is a sign of a sacred thing, and since the outward action in this consecration denotes the grace and power bestowed on him who is consecrated, it becomes clearly evident that order must be truly and properly regarded as a sacrament. Thus the bishop handing to him who is being ordained a chalice with wine and water and a paten with bread says, Receive the power of offering sacrifice, etc. 
In these words pronounced along with the application of the matter, the Church has always taught that the power of consecrating the Eucharist is conferred and that a character is impressed on the soul, which brings with it grace necessary for the due and proper discharge of that office. As the Apostle declares thus, I admonish thee that thou stir up the grace of God which is in thee by the imposition of my hands. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sobriety. That's in 2 Timothy chapter 1. So here we pause in our reading of the, of the Catechism of the Council of Trent, right before the uh, Catechism starts talking about the number of orders. But let's take a moment just to look at the Summa. This, again, is the supplement in the third part, the supplement after St. Thomas died, various students of his took his notes to sort of finish off the treatment of his sacrament. St. Thomas died uh, in the middle of his treatment of the sacrament of penance. But this supplement, the other parts of the Summa, the supplement uh, that St. Thomas Aquinas didn't actually write himself, are still very authoritative and taken largely from his notes and um, St. Thomas's own students who knew his thinking and his writings. And so in the question 34, we find that question is of the sacrament of order as to its essence and its parts. And let us just look at the very first article there in question 34, whether there should be order in the church. And for me, that's a very striking title for the article, because sometimes one thinks about the sacrament of holy orders as just being the sacrament in which priests are consecrated or bishops. And um, um, we sort of forget that the word, the sacrament of holy orders, really does have this strict meaning that the catechism gives us that it's called orders because order has a specific meaning. As the catechism says, a placing of superior and inferior things with respect to some principle. And so the first article here is whether there should be order in the church. And uh, we'll read a couple of objections. The first objection is, it would seem that there should not be order in the church, for order requires subjection and preeminence. But subjection seemingly is incompatible with the liberty whereunto we are called by Christ. Therefore, there should not be order in the church. The first objector, therefore, uh, shows us that the um, once you say order, you're talking about a higher and lower. But that seems to go against our idea of this uh, an equality and a, and a freedom. It seems like Christ calls us to a liberty and not a subjection to some sort of higher, higher person or, or prince or something. The second objection is, Further, he who has received an order becomes another's superior. But in the church, everyone should deem himself lower than another. And that's uh, from the writings of St. Paul. Let each esteem others better than themselves. Therefore, order should not be in the church. And uh, the third objection is, Further, we find order among the angels on account of their differing in natural and gratuitous gifts. But all men are one in nature, and it is not known who has the higher gifts of grace. Therefore, order should not be in the church. 
So that's an interesting objection as well. Um, we know that the angels, there's uh, nine choirs of angels and there appears to be an order there. But men are all of one nature. So therefore, we wouldn't seem to have the order among us as the angels do. The article continues, on the contrary, those things that are of God are in order. <laughs> now the church is of God, for he himself built it with his blood. Therefore, there ought to be order in the church. I think that it's self-evident, uh, especially if we think of the book of wisdom, where it says wisdom orders all things sweetly. Therefore, the, those things that are of God are in order. The, on the contrary, continues, further the state of the church is between the state of nature and the state of glory. Now we find order in nature in that some things are above others, and likewise in glory as in the angels. Therefore, there should be order in the church. The article proceeds with the body. I answer that God wished to produce his works in likeness to himself as far as possible in order that they might be perfect and that he might be known through them. Hence, that he might be portrayed in his works not only according to what he is in himself, but also according as he acts on others. He laid this natural law on all things, that last things should be reduced and perfected by middle things, and middle things by the first, as Dionysius says. Wherefore, that this beauty might not be lacking to the church, he established order in her, so that some should deliver the sacraments to others, being thus made like to God in their own way, as cooperating with God, even as in the natural body some members act on others. We see here in the reply that the order in the church is greatly significant with respect to the beauty of the church, that God makes things to reflect himself. And without this order, we wouldn't see the way in which God acts on others because he acts on others in such a way that the highest things act on middle things and middle things act on the lowest things. And there's a certain beauty, just as in the human body, we see this order. Now we'll continue with the replies to the objections. Uh, the first objection was about, we shouldn't be subject to one another if we're called to the liberty of Christ. The reply is, the subjection of slavery is incompatible with liberty, for slavery consists in lording over others and employing them for one's own profit. Such subjection is not required in order, whereby those who preside have to seek the salvation of their subjects and not their own profit. So we think of the words of Christ, he came to serve, not to be served. And therefore, those who receive the distinction of order are really seeking the salvation of the souls of those whom they, who, over whom they are. And uh, to the second objection, the reply is, each one should esteem himself lower in merit, not in office. And orders are a kind of office. So when St. Paul says we should esteem ourselves lower than others, he means we should esteem ourselves lower in merit, not necessarily in our office. Finally, the reply to the third objection, Order among the angels does not arise from difference of nature unless accidentally, insofar as difference of grace results in them from difference of nature. But in them it results directly from their difference in grace, 
because their orders regard their participation of divine things, and they are communicating them in the state of glory, which is according to the measure of grace, as being the end and effect, so to speak, of grace. On the other hand, the orders of the church militant regard the participation in the sacraments and the communication thereof, which are the cause of grace and in a way precede grace. And consequently, our orders do not require sanctifying grace, but only the power to dispense the sacraments, for which reason order does not correspond to the difference of sanctifying grace, but to the difference of power. And so we'll stop there. Just We're just beginning our study of the sacrament of holy orders, and um, this is going to be um, a more lengthy treatment, and, and we'll be able to look at some more articles in the Summa, but we will, um, in our next episode, we'll talk about the number of orders and start to distinguish the seven orders and why those were instituted in the church for so many centuries. And afterwards, we'll talk about why the church and ministeria Quaidon in 1973 uh, thought it fit to reduce uh, the number of orders. So thank you for joining me in this episode of Exploring the Catechism of the Council of Trent in a Year. I'm Mark Langley, and we look forward to joining you next time.